Children, you'll find your words this evening in the normal place. I know I said that a couple of weeks ago, and it wasn't true, and I apologize, but they are there tonight. So you will find them there. You'll see the words clinging and seeking, resting, trusting, self-justify, self-righteousness, works, law, and gospel. All right. Well, in his book, Seculosity, um, David Zoll writes the following. He says, we can scarcely conceive of ourselves anymore apart from our doing, or what Christians call work, or works. We construct ladders out of whatever materials we have at hand, shoddy or not, and erect scoreboards where they don't belong. We chase our enoughness, being successful enough, and happy enough, and thin enough, and wealthy enough, and influential enough, and desired enough, and charitable enough, and woke enough, and good enough. And we do so into every corner of our lives, driving everyone around us and ourselves crazy. Self-justification may not be the only thing going on in life, but it occupies a much larger slice of our day-to-day existence than most of us would care to acknowledge. And the truth is that the higher we climb on the ladder of self-justification, the longer it gets, and the further apart the rungs grow. You might say the cost of an ideal of righteousness is the reality of unrighteousness, pure and simple. Whether or not we have the resources to cope with that burden is a different question. The tendency is to come to our passage tonight and do one of two things. First is to focus attention solely on verse 18 and divorce and remarriage, even though that is not the topic or main topic of the text, it is an illustration used to bolster the main point of the text or as an example of the main point of the text. Or two, or secondly, we have the tendency to to read the passage and use it as a hammer rather than a mirror that we look into as it was intended to be. In other words, we're quick to read the passage and then begin to point our fingers at the Pharisees. And then in our minds, we mentally make a list of all those who definitely need to hear this message. And of course, we are not on our list. And all the while, we fail to take that long, hard look at what it reveals about ourselves and how we ourselves are prone to wander and how we ourselves construct ladders and we build scoreboards and we chase enoughness. We self-justify and we cling to the wrong things. We seek the wrong approval, and we rest in the wrong work. Rather than say, enough is enough, and trust in Jesus. And that's our outline tonight. Clinging to the wrong things, seeking the wrong approval, resting in the wrong work, and trusting in the righteous one. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. 
Father, by your Spirit, grant power, as always, to the preaching of your Word. Would you grant all of us in this room ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the Gospel. Grant us the ability to apprehend and appraise our Savior, His Gospel. Awaken our attention and, and challenge us and convict us and then comfort us. Encourage us, build us up, refresh us. As always, I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, and and I'm in need of you, and I'm in need of your grace, and I'm in need of the Spirit to do something good for you. So I would pray that you would do that. Grant those things to me that I might be a pure channel of your grace, and I pray these things In the name of Christ and for the sake of His church, amen. Well, in that same book that I just mentioned, Seculosity, Mr. Zoll quotes theologian Reinhold Niebuhr who once wrote, there is no deeper pathos in the spiritual life of man than the cruelty of righteous people. In other words, there's nothing more tragic in our spiritual experience than the cruelty of self-righteous people. And we see that going on. This is exactly what we see going on in verse 14. Jesus had been speaking to His disciples, and He had been speaking to them about money and possessions and of being good stewards of those things, of those resources that they had been entrusted with, that He had given them, that God had given them. And and he said some pretty weighty things. We heard last week, he, he, heard, or he, he said some pretty weighty things about the differences between holding their stuff and their stuff holding them. And he pointedly drew a line of division, right? a, a clear line that, that was distinct, and it declared that you could, he said you could serve God or you could serve your stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't both and, it was either or. It was one or the other. He had gone so far to say you can love your stuff, you can worship your stuff, you can be devoted to your stuff, or you can be, be devoted to love and worship the Lord, but you, you can't do both things. And of course, while he was talking, the Pharisees are listening, as they often were, and, and as was typically the case, as they're listening, they become offended. And they became offended because Luke says they were lovers of money. And yes, they were doing a lot of things for God, but in the end, it was all about wealth and material things. And rather than to listen to him and to consider the things that he was saying and to contemplate the truth that was being spoken, they chose to ridicule him. The word describes a contemptuous, a haughty disdain or disregard. Visually, they would have lifted their noses and rolled their eyes and given a (laughs) and turned to walk away. They were being both blatant and flagrant. They were being offensive and disgraceful in their display. And, And their response, really when you think about it, it proved his point. Right? They did exactly what They should have done because of their hearts, because the severity of a person or a group's response is typically proportionate to the accuracy of the claim, if not the threat perceived. So they were clinging to the wrong things. Again, as a result, their things had a hold of them. Rather than master their things, they were being mastered by their things. 
Rather than love God and serve Him, they love their things. They serve their things. Wealth had become an idol, and therefore the accumulation of it was first and foremost on their minds. They wanted as much money and possessions that they could, that they could gather, and it became the primary motivating factor in most of what they did. Now, because Aaron covered the previous text uh, so thoroughly last week and so well, there really isn't much that we need to belabor on this, point, uh, on this point, but I do want to ask a question because I don't know about you, but I've slept since then, and it would be helpful to be reminded, I'm sure, of a few things. And the question is, how do we know if we're clinging to the wrong things? Here's some thoughts. If we become anxious when we don't have it, or it's running out, it's the wrong thing, and we're clinging to it. If we become preoccupied with obtaining it and maintaining it, and always wanting more of it, it's the wrong thing, and we're clinging to it. If the number of hours of our work week if, if the number of hours of our work week that it takes to obtain it and maintain it inhibits our family interaction and our Christian service, or if those number of hours inhibit the use of and enjoyment of that thing, it's the wrong thing, and we're clinging to it. If employment decisions are made to obtain and maintain it, Regardless of the spiritual and physical and emotional and familial consequences, it's the wrong thing, and we're clinging to it. If we covet it when others have it, if complaining and discontent about not having it overshadows the joy that we have for the things that are in our possession, or if, if we're unable to do without it or give it up in order to increase our generosity, it's the wrong thing. And we're, we've got a grip. And if our identity or status in our minds or in the minds of others are tied to it or determined by our uh, owning it or maintaining of it, then yes, it's the wrong thing. We've got a grip on it. Kids, children, this is for you, okay? I want you to think about this. Just really listen for just a minute and think about this. If you can't share it, or if you uh, often take it away from a brother or sister or friend, or you tattletale, run to mom or dad and tattletale to get it back, it's the wrong thing, and you're clinging to it. So the question is, are we clinging to the wrong things? Are we clinging to the wrong things? Well, unfortunately, this wasn't their only problem. This wasn't our only problem. It was just the tip of the iceberg because the things they were clinging to and or their wrong clinging was motivated by their wrong seeking. Right? They were clinging to the wrong things because they were seeking the wrong approval. In verse 15, Jesus says, he looks at them and says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Their idolatry was was actually a symptom of a deeper issue. The deeper issue was that they were more concerned about their standing before others than they were their standing before God. 
They were more concerned about their, the opinions of others more than they were their, the opinions of God. They were more concerned about being right in the eyes of other people than they were being right and good in the sight of God. In other words, they were more concerned with the approval of men and others than they were the approval of God. And it manifested itself in a couple of ways. First, they worked very hard to inauthentically and disingenuously present themselves as better than they actually, actually were, hiding behind a facade of spirituality or religiosity. They were adept at hiding their sin and presenting themselves to be better and more righteous than they actually were. And they had set a standard of virtue signaling and humble bragging, and they didn't need social media to do it. And second, they exalted themselves in ways that were actually an abomination in the sight of God. We, we got to think about this for just a minute. They were willing to do what was disgusting to God in order to be approved of and accepted by other people. They were not only willing to do it, but they would, they would promote it and celebrate what God considered evil in order to be considered good by others because men considered those things good. And notice the abomination. The abomination that initiated his rebuke had nothing to do with things like abortion or racism or same-sex marriage. It had to do with their love for money. Not something on any of our top ten lists of detestable sins. But Jesus looked them in the eye, looked them in the eye, and he said, You may have fooled others, but you haven't fooled God. He sees right through you. No matter what game you're playing, no matter, uh, no matter what mask you're wearing, no matter what rule you're following, you can't fool him. And he's making the same point that he did back in chapter 11. You'll remember, they, they as the Pharisees, they were concerned about external things. They were, they were uh, interested in, in the outward appearances, and they had no concern for what was internal or inside. They were concerned about their appearances and their behavior. They had no concern for character whatsoever. They looked clean and undefiled on the inside, but all the while they were money-hungry and just plain wicked on the inside. And unfortunately, we need to pause here too and look into this, this mirror as difficult as it might be. Because the same is true today as was true then. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, God knows what is really in our hearts. He knows what acts of spiritual rebellion we have committed this very week. He knows what sins we are longing to commit if only we could get the chance. He knows what quiet cursing we do about our little discouragements in life and what private animosity we have towards our brother or sister in Christ. 
and what secret feelings of self-pity we are nursing in our hearts. He knows how superior we think we are to other people and how deceptively we give them a better impression of ourselves than we really deserve. The important question is not what other people think of us, but what God thinks of us. And then he concludes with this, and the reality is he has, complete, he has a completely different way of looking at things than we do with a much higher standard for godliness. Are we seeking the wrong approval? Are we clinging to the wrong things? And I wish I could say that that was it. But there's a third. They were clinging to the wrong things, they were seeking the wrong approval, and they were resting in the wrong work. In verse 15, he says, you are those justifying yourselves. He called them out for doing what fallen man has done since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned and tried to make clothes out of fig leaves and hide their shame and hide from God. They were attempting to cover their sin with the appearance of godliness, and they did that in two ways. One was by misusing the law, and they misused the law by treating it as a means of salvation. And they abused the law by applying their own interpretations and their own traditions in order to keep it. In other words, they would establish, and we've talked about this before, but they would establish um, particular extra-biblical standards and their own traditions that they themselves could, one, either easily fulfill with the least amount of effort possible, or two, they would, they would be such that they were easily avoidable by exercising loopholes that would enable them to, to escape the high demands that the law put forth. And as a part of his rebuke, Jesus says very clearly, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Another way of saying it would be, it would be easier to destroy all of creation than for one I or one T to not be dotted or crossed in the law. And he wanted them to know that the law must be followed. It's a must. It must be kept. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be dumbed down. The law was what it was and would always remain what it was because it was an expression of God's character and His will, which was perfect, which is why Paul calls the law holy, righteous, and good. So it was therefore the law was perfect because God was perfect. The law would not change because God would not change. The law would not be abrogated or abolished because He alone, God alone, had been and would always be in charge. And then in verse 18, He gives them an example. He gives them the example of this enduring and uncompromising nature. And He says, divorce, right? The example is divorce, and he says, and he gives them this example because they were violating this particular law themselves. 
And he says divorce and adultery had always been and always would be sin. So the laws regarding divorce and adultery could not be set aside. They couldn't be relaxed, nor could any other part of the moral law. Because the law was not to be added to or taken away from. And they needed to stop. They needed to stop what they were doing. And brothers and sisters, we look in the mirror again of this passage, and we have to admit that many times we fall into the same trap. We, we want to consider ourselves and we want others to consider us as good people. That's a good southern saying. You know, they're, they're just good people. And we want to be right in the sight of God and right in the sight of man, but due to our sin and our lack of goodness... In order to be good and right, right, we have to to lower the standard to which we're we're held. We have to dumb down the standard. We have to lower the bar when it comes to what God expects and what constitutes sin. And we do that in well, I want to in multiple ways, but I want to just share with you the first three that came to my mind this week, and you you're gonna be able to add to more to this list of three, and you can talk about this in your small groups this week, but Um, I I just want to share three. The first is this. Many times we fall into the trap of replacing the standard of the law with other fallen people. We replace the standard of the law with other fallen people. And then we manipulate the comparisons to work out in our favor. We choose those fallen people very carefully. Because depending on the situation, we pick someone who is failing worse than we are. And then we tell ourselves and others and God, we look pretty good. We're not like that person or that person. I'm pointing to empty chairs. The second way we do it is by shifting our attention away from the law and turning it toward our day-to-day experiences and make those experiences markers of self-righteousness like philanthropy and altruism and busyness and relationships and parenting and health and fitness and leisure activities and hobbies. And then we use social media to uh, promote ourselves in these particular areas, making sure that everyone knows how good we're doing and how they are falling short unless they are meeting up to the standards that we've created and marked as righteous. This is the point of Mr. Zoll's book, by the way. And the third way we do it is by interpreting the law through our own experiences and preferences. And we add and remove from it, add to it, remove from it, in order to increase our ability to comply to it and to justify ourselves. And an example of this I've already kind of alluded to in that we, we divide our, li- our sins into a couple of lists. Right? We make a list of detestable sins that deserve judgment and strict judgment immediately. And then we make a list of respectable sins that either deserve leniency or... Um, they're, they're such minor, we believe them to be such minor indiscretions that we don't need to bring them to God's attention by, by repenting of them because it would be a waste of His time. 
And we say that God covers over, His love covers over a multitude of sins, but He covers over those respectable sins, not the detestable ones. And interestingly enough, we usually, our sins usually end up on the respectable list, and others end up on the detestable list. And again, I'm sure you could add to that list of three, or you might have even other specific examples of the three that, I, that I've shared, but again, you can talk about that this week. But the problem is, and you know, you know this as well as I do, the problem is there is no minor, sin is, there is no sin that's a minor indiscretion. It doesn't exist. And God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't lower the grading scale. And that's obvious to us in the text when he says that the love of money is an abomination. It's a pretty severe descriptor. And while the law reveals the character of God and the law reveals our sin and the law points us to Christ and the law gives us a clear path to obedience and to pleasing Him, the law does not provide the power to fulfill it. And in the end, in the end that means that we're simply fools if we think we can ever justify ourselves. We can't. The standard is perfect. It can't be changed. It can't be manipulated, no matter how much we wish it could be or no matter how hard we try. It's impossible. The law, again, is what it is because God is who He is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is immutable. And we feel the weight of that. And so we have to ask ourselves, what hope do we have? What hope is there? Fortunately, God is also loving and gracious and merciful because our hope and our assurance is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ and His gospel. He says in verse 16, Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Jesus said what he's been saying all along on on this road to Jerusalem. We've heard it week in and week out. The kingdom, the, the good news was that what the law and the prophets pointed to, the kingdom of God, was at hand. And the kingdom was at hand because the long awaited, much anticipated Messiah was in their midst. And he had come to do for sinners what sinners could not do for themselves. He had come to not only pay the debt that they owed, that we owed. But he came to fulfill the law on our behalf. He had come to not only provide the forgiveness that we needed, but he also came to provide the righteousness that God required. Luther once said, the same righteousness that God is and condemns us is the righteousness he provides. And that He gives to us by grace. 
Right? And that's because He doesn't give us our own internal righteousness. He gives us an alien righteousness. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us and credits our account with His work. Because he had done, he had, he came to do more than to be an example. Though he did, he did more than come to be an example. He came to be a substitute for you and for me. He was the righteous one in whom sinners should place their trust and to look to in faith. And when they did so, his righteousness would be credited to them. It's the great exchange. Our sin, our debt placed upon Christ, his righteousness covering us. And this is great. He said, Jesus says that those who listened to and heard and understood the message that he had been proclaiming throughout this, this journey in his ministry, those that took him at his word and placed their faith and trust in him could not be kept away from him. I mean, let's just go back a, just for a second. Think about this. Remember the leper in chapter 5? And what about the friends of the paralytic who dug through the roof in chapter 5? And the centurion who sent his servants. And the woman who crashed the Pharisee's party to anoint Jesus' feet. What about Jairus? And the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 8. The father of the possessed son in chapter 9. Mary in chapter 10. They all wanted to be near him. They all wanted what he was offering. And they were not going to be denied access. They weren't taking what wasn't theirs as if Jesus was kind of holding it back and making them reach for it and jump through hoops to, to get to it and to possess it. And they weren't gaining anything in their own effort. But... They were doing and were willing to do and were doing whatever was necessary to get to him. And they were not going to be denied because they knew he was their only hope. They had no hope apart from him. Every step of the way, Jesus has, as he's making his way, right, he's making his way to Jerusalem, he's making his way to the cross that would secure their pardon and ours. And every step along the way, he compassionately urged sinners to respond. Proclaiming the message of the truth of what he had come to do and urging them compassionately to respond and to look to him in faith. And he makes the same plea tonight. Again, from Pastor Eichen, it would be worth any effort and every expense to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all the majesty of His everlasting kingdom. If necessary, would you not force your way inside? But of course, that isn't necessary. He goes on to say, all that is required is faith in Christ.
So do what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. Receive the gospel. Believe the good news. Trust in Jesus. And you will enter the kingdom that never ends. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word.